Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 1st December with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I spoke with Charlotte Band, global food and beverage sector lead at Qantas. We talked about how food and agricultural sector companies are strategizing on the need for transformational change and how to bring what have been siloed as sustainability factors into mainstream corporate decision making. And from Innovation Forum's recent Business Action and Scope 3 Emissions event in Washington, D.C., we have insights from Rampobank's Taryn Lawrence and Jeff Brighty from Mura. That's all to come. First is some sustainable business news. Global food business Cargill has announced what it describes as an accelerated commitment to eliminate deforestation and land conversion from its direct and indirect commodity supply chains in Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay by 2025. The commitments include soy, maize, wheat and cotton, and is in addition to the company's global commitment for deforestation free commodities and commercial free soy across South America by 2030. The company says it will work with the World Resources Institute on geospatial traceability to strengthen monitoring, reporting and verification of natural ecosystems and farm areas. The WRI has been very public on its commitments to supporting the implementation of deforestation free supply chains, describing them as critical for food security, biodiversity and action on climate change. Cargill's move has been broadly welcomed, not least by vocal critics Mighty Earth. However, the activist group does describe the new commitment as incomplete, calling for it to be expanded beyond Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay, highlighting concerns in Bolivia, Paraguay and Colombia. Mighty Earth also questions the 2025 timeline, seeing that it risks destruction of forests and other biomes in the meantime. That said, the group does call for Cargill's competitors to follow the company's lead and strengthen commitments on deforestation and land conversion. Dairy Business Danone is to work with the global methane hub to reduce methane emissions from the digestive tracts of livestock, primarily cows, in its supply chain. The hub's enteric fermentation research and development accelerator is supporting the scaling of feed additives for cows and researching into modifying the genetics of feed and the animals themselves. Methane is, of course, a highly potent greenhouse gas. The International Energy Agency attributes around one-third of the entire rise in global temperatures to the gas. Food systems are estimated to contribute 40% of global annual methane emissions, with digestive fermentation causing up to 70% of that. Ahead of the COP28 climate talks in Dubai, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative has revealed new guidelines on what constitutes high-quality carbon credits. A revised claims code of practice contains a monitoring, reporting and assurance framework that allows companies to make declarations regarding the credits they are buying. The flip side is that this new guidance will facilitate financing of high-integrity projects that mitigate climate change. More specifically, using the monitoring, reporting and assurance framework, companies can now make silver, gold or platinum claims as outlined in the VCMI's Claims Code of Practice, released in June 2023. This means that those companies can now make verified claims and demonstrate that they are going above and beyond science-aligned emissions cuts. VCMI has also launched a beta version of a Scope 3 flexibility claim. Once finalised in 2024, the Scope 3 flexibility claim will enable companies to take responsibility for their Scope 3 emissions while getting on the path to net zero through the use of high-quality carbon credits. VCMI says that robust safeguards are in place to maintain integrity and avoid misuse of this new claim. All eyes are, of course, on the COP28 climate meetings in Dubai. Keep an eye on the Innovation Forum website for coverage over the next few weeks. I was delighted to talk recently with Charlotte Band, Global Food and Beverage Sector Lead at Qantas. We had a wide-ranging discussion about driving progress on sustainable business challenges in the food and agriculture sector. We're going to talk a bit about how you're seeing companies transitioning from intention to action on climate issues, particularly related to the food and beverage sector. 
it does feel like companies are now getting to the point of embracing the transformations necessary for the transition to real long-term sustainability. To what extent do you agree with that? Um, what examples can you share if you do? We are definitely seeing a shift. When I started working in the field, I remember we talked a lot about measurement and then it shifted. And during our last podcast, we were talking about the shift from measurement to commitments. And now we're seeing that phase also really shifting on, OK, the commitments have been made, especially in the food and beverage sector, the net zero commitments, the science based targets, all of that is in place. And we're starting seeing really the companies implementing action whether it's through pilots around regenerative agriculture, whether it's transitioning their packaging, their renewable energy, and so on. I do think, however, and that's where maybe I disagree partially with the statement, is that the level of transition that's going to be really required to reach net zero, that's one thing that we're not seeing yet. Companies are still struggling by figuring out what does their company look like in a net zero world or more broadly in a planetary aligned economy. And that level of transition, we're still not fully seeing. We're seeing action, but more in the incremental space and not at the pace required or at the level required yet. What are the conversations, I imagine difficult conversations, that companies need to have internally push this process forward? We've been seeing more and more with some of our clients that they are starting to grasp that, okay, it needs to go beyond, especially as the CSOs do. But the reality is, as long as you don't have those discussions really with the C-suite level and the board being, okay, what does our business model look like in a planetary aligned economy? Like that's a really difficult discussion to have because it might mean completely stopping certain parts of your activities or shifting entire pieces of your portfolio. This is extremely deep as a transition. These difficult discussions really need to happen. The other difficult one is what does creating value mean for the company? And how do you grow that value? This nice notion of creating shared value that was published years ago. And I think fundamentally it goes back to that. What is the value that a company is creating? And the good news is that we are starting to see more and more leaders starting to consider this and look into these discussions. But as long as you don't have those fundamental answers of my business model and what growth looks like into a planetary economy, I think everything else will struggle really getting in motion. What then are the levers that CSOs can bring to the board to push this forward? What are the levers that can really make the difference here? I see three types of levers, especially for a CSO. The first one for me is culture. Like you need a sustainability culture as a prerequisite for sustainability transformation. And the great news is that in any company we work with, employees are eager to hear about sustainability. That's really a lever that we can use. So bringing your employee on board, bringing that motivation and helping them understand that each of them at their levels can do something about becoming more sustainable. They all have power. And so I think empowering the large base of employees is a critical one. The second thing is that CSOs have received more and more questions from investors, which I think is great because it creates a relationship between the CSO and the investor. That is a critical one. And we see the positive that a question from an investor can drive. As soon as there is an investor asking questions about water, the company starts shifting on water. How can the CSO then potentially also influence a bit more those investors into the topics that are really material for the planet and for the company and help them focus on what matters? 
And then it's also about talking internally and being that advocate. Like, how do you get the financing that is going to be required? How do you operationalize and make your sustainability strategy something that the functions can own? And they will have the financing to do that. As long as your sustainability strategy remains within your sustainability department, it's never going to be successful. How can you develop an actually a product strategy that is sustainable and not a sustainability strategy about products? And that's really where the CSO can be this change agent through the functions to get this transition going. Yes, yeah, so it's the kind of slightly ironic point that a successful CSO is essentially making their job defunct because it needs to be part of everything rather than a specific function. I don't think we're at that stage yet. There's an awful lot the companies need to do to get to that stage. Everyone talks about collaboration. You mentioned it just now, internally and externally. Do you think that there's a reluctance in terms of transparency as a barrier to collaboration? Are you still seeing that reluctance to be fully transparent internally and externally? Yeah, I'd say it's still present and and for good points, you know, like at the end of the day, in the beginning, sustainability was very high level and not really touching the core businesses. And so it was easy to communicate. It was easy to share. But now there's compliance elements coming into play. There's deep competitive elements that we're talking about. The specific sourcing region of a company can be a highly competitive element because it can determine the quality or the type of products or the taste of the product they're providing. It has all these elements that come into play. So I do think that For some good reason, sometimes there is a challenge for companies to fully be open and to fully collaborate. And to to the point that, honestly, there are laws about preventing some levels of collaborations to avoid difficult economic challenges of companies taking a monopoly and so on. There's all of that that comes to play. But I do think we've seen companies collaborate very well with NGOs, governments. We also see them collaborate with their suppliers and we see them even collaborate with peers. We will see Danone and Nestle sometimes coming together on a specific topic to really help changing things. So yes, it is a challenge. I don't see that as really stopping them right now. They'll go through third parties to make sure that data is secure and that you know the data is not shared per se. We have launched you know, at Qantas consortiums with many companies providing us very confidential data and we made it work. Yes, it is a concern, but I would say I don't think that is fully preventing collaboration at this stage. Is that sort of peer-to-peer collaboration you mentioned just now, is that the sort of evidence that you're seeing that senior management at these big companies and brands are embracing the need for change then? The fact they are finding these clever ways to work together? I'd say definitely that's a sign. And more broadly, and we see you know CEOs taking the stage much more about sustainability and not just about saying it's important, but they start owning their sustainability strategies. They know what's going on at their sustainability department level, the key topics they're working on. And so you can see them embracing it by really talking about it. And it's not just the CEOs anymore. It's the chief procurement officer. It's the CFO who are all starting to really know much more about this. I think another thing that we definitely see is also the fact that it's tied to the performance. More and more companies, you look at a Nestle, a Mars, and so on, they have the sustainability performance tied to the performance bonuses of their senior leadership. Obviously, you see that naturally they will become much more. And then the last thing that I see beyond collaboration is the financial commitment of some companies. And I just named a couple right now. So Mars, for instance, announced, I don't know if you saw this, just a few weeks ago, that it was invested a billion dollars over the next three years to make sure that they accelerate the pace because they are not yet reaching and where they want to be in terms of sustainability. And they see sustainability as equal to sustainability performance as equal to financial performance. So if you look at all this, this is really such a big, big sign that it's not just the sustainability department fight anymore. It is really being embraced by senior leadership. 
again, to the level that is needed, it's still sometimes more rare, but we are seeing very positive signs there. Obviously, to translate that into the corporate performance, KPIs are very important. For you then, what are the key performance indicators that need to be in place so that the incentives across a business are all pushing in the right direction, you know, from top to bottom? For me, what you finished your question with is really the most important piece. It has to be top to bottom. Yes, we're seeing some leadership having KPIs associated with sustainability, like are we on track with reaching our science-based targets? And yes or no things. That's very nice. But as long as your buyer down the road doesn't have a sustainability KPI in the way he purchased the specific commodity, then it's never going to happen. So those KPIs have to be everywhere in order to be successful. And then at the end of the day, I think one of the big, the most important pieces about these KPIs is that they can be varied. I don't think we should have one or two specific KPIs throughout the entire organization. Rather, where I see the role of a CSO to work with those functions is to figure out for a specific department, what are the key KPIs that will be required to reach the sustainability strategy and translate that into operational terms. So to give you an example, if you're thinking about the packaging department, you know, something very critical for many brand owners or CPGs, a designer is not going to be looking at, okay, tons of CO2s, water scarcity, plastic leakage, all of that are not KPIs that are familiar with, nor that we want to spend time training everybody on these KPIs. Instead, what needs to happen is, okay, figuring out what does the packaging of the future, what is a planetary aligned packaging portfolio look like? And to get there, what are some of the criteria, packaging-related criteria that need to be put in place? So recyclability, recycled content, weight of materials, types of materials that maybe you want to get out. And then you start having those KPIs next to the cost of the quality and all of this. Once you have something that is simple like this, you'll be able to really talk to the designer in a language that speaks to them, and they'll be able to embrace it that more effectively. There's a lot of talk about just transition involving businesses in their supply chains and also in the context of the, of the business itself. What does the right transition look like inside a business and then perhaps also thinking in terms of a business and its supply chain? There's a nice saying that says, I would love to live in theory because in theory, everything goes right. You know, So in theory, you have this notion of, okay, a transition takes two big phases. The first one is figuring out what the transition even looks like. Where are you at? What are the challenges? Where do you want to go next? And what does it look like to go there? And that's very much, I would say, a paper-based exercise. It's an in-house exercise that companies are doing. And then there's the actual change that needs to happen. And that's where you need to shift everything, the way you do things, the processes, the tools, all of that needs to happen. And that's a complete behavioral change. That's where you will start bringing your supply chain, figuring out what investments are needed, where you might have some companies in your supply chains already moving and how you can support them versus others that might not be moving and where you need to invest maybe more. All of this is taking place. You mentioned the word just a transition, and that's for me something that is really critical, is especially when we're thinking about the food system. Our food system relies on agriculture and relies on farmers that unfortunately very often are under poverty levels and all of this. There is no successful food system transition if there isn't a redesign of the way the economics of that food system functions. And if we don't solve that challenge for and with the farmers, we'll never be able to sustain something in the long term. That piece of what the transition looks like, well, it looks like discussing with the farmers and actually solving that equation. Then Tyndale, it's all a big, nice commitment, but it's nothing that's going to be very concrete. 
it does feel that there's been a big shift to in properly involving farmers and growing communities in these conversations because, as you say, there's an acceptance that they need to be brought along with the process. Do you have any examples of farmer engagement that's done well? I mean, what does that look like for a big business perspective? There are many programs and programs, funnily enough, that were launched even before this big topic about net zero. When you look at the Nespresso AAA program, or if you look about the Cocoa Life Plan from Mondelez, or more recently, the Reginag program from McCain, there are a lot of these programs that are being developed. And all of these are really going to the ground and talking and working with these farmers on understanding what is it that they actually need how can you help them? How can you support them? Sometimes it's financial, but not always. Sometimes it can be technical. It can be expertise. It can be unlocking some best practices. It can be creating a way for them to share knowledge. There are new tools around the farm. There's been a realization, first of all, that the farmer is needed to achieve this, that it can't be done without them. And the second realization is that they know what they're doing. They've been farming their lands for so long. The big company who comes in and just say, by the way, let's switch all of this because we know best, that's never going to work. It has to be a dialogue. It has to be something where we embrace the fact that they have their own generational knowledge of their lands and to listen to them as to what they need and then adapt the support to what they need. And we see many companies shifting into that frame more on the piloting stage right now because they are testing it out. It's a great sign to see that companies are putting more of the farmer at the table. At the Future of Food conference that we attended, it was just nice to see some farmers present. And I do hope that in the coming years, we'll see more and more because I think we should have a much more balanced representations of growers and farmers to these events as well. Certainly from our perspective at Innovation Forum, we are very, very keen to have farmers involved in the conversation, certainly doing our very best to include them in the conversations that we're able to bring together. Inevitably, when there's a process of change, there are going to be unintended consequences that emerge. What are the sort of things that companies should be looking out for? Well, one of the ones that I've started to notice more and more as we set those 2030 targets, sometimes without figuring out that long-term business model view, is that they might be working on improving processes that they actually should get rid of. The reality of taking that step back and figuring out what does our business model look like in a planetary aligned world will help you avoid spending the next five or 10 years working on some processes that maybe by then you'll realize you should simply phase out of because that's not the future of your industry. I think that's one of the biggest one that I see right now when we're setting those shorter science-based targets and shorter term actions. Another key one is, I mean, that's something that we've seen for years, but I think with the increase of compliance right now around the reporting trap, so many companies are spending years long resources, really focusing on all the reporting that needs to happen. And it still decreases significantly the amount of finance and team resources that actually goes into the action pay. Finding a way to streamline those reporting efforts, to communicate what you need to communicate, but not try to do everything about every reporting is going to be an important one. A couple of others that we keep seeing or start seeing is by having more and more companies act, and there it is true, companies are acting. We're seeing more and more of the quick wins being developed. All of that is moving forward. But unfortunately, these are still not enough to reach the transition. Well, what happens is that when they communicate on these quick wins that they're working on, there tends to be a sense of greenwashing that is coming up. Making sure that what you communicate is either saying, we know it's not enough, here is the first things we've done, and we know it's not enough, we'll do more, or really communicate on the big transformational pieces. But by only communicate on the smaller ones, without that honesty that it's not big enough, and we've seen some recent examples of that in the press, I think we see those very regularly, that's a big risk of that 
beginning of the transition. The final one, which is very critical as we shift into action, is the complexity. How do you make sure you don't go into a stage where things are so complex that you get paralyzed? And it's a topic we've heard a lot from companies, even at some conferences. When we bring the topic of nature, companies are like, wait, I'm already trying to figure out climate. I can't look into nature now. When actually nature can help them reach climate. And so how do you explain those nuances? How do you show that these topics are not adding complexity, but actually enablers to success? And then making that transition with some key focus areas to try and make the change. And don't get me wrong, it's going to be complex, no matter what. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Are concerns about accusations of greenwashing causing delays in the process, is there an element or a risk the perfect being the enemy of the good here? Because companies are concerned about going down a route that might lead to accusations of greenwashing. And then they're not actually getting on with what they need to get on with. Because at the moment, we don't have any time to wait. I had a discussion recently with a journalist. We discussed this. We still need to allow companies to communicate because if we also say that everything they say is greenwashing, we're just going to paralyze companies as well. And, and they do need that communication element to you know, move forward. And to your point, we need everything to happen. Any action at this point is worth taking and then we need more. That's where I think companies have to be simply honest that it might not be enough. When letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. You need pragmatism, to your point. Let's go. Let's do some things. It might not be perfect, but let's do something. And then you need to, that honest transparency of this is everything we're doing and we know it's not enough and we're working on the rest. But here is already everything that we're doing and we also need to be proud of everything that we've put in motion. And I think if you just add that final piece of the sentence of we know it's not enough, we're working on it, but so far, we've already implemented all of this. I think the message would be much more well-received and we would avoid a lot of the greenwashing that's happening. How do you think the conversations will evolve over the next few years? What are the things you think are going to be coming up to ensure that the transition that we've been talking about, the kind of real move to action continues? There's three shifts that I'm noticing. I think for the transition to happen, there's that big discussions around business model. But, but some of the topics that I'm going to see, that I see will become more and more present it's first climate is going to move to nature and planetary. We're not going to be talking about climate only, especially in the food system. There is no transition without nature. And I would go even beyond. There is no transition without the economics for the farmers. What does that planetary or broader donut economy looks like for a food system to be sustainable? And that entire discussion, I think, will keep happening more and more. And, and once we will, we will have a transition that has more chances of succeeding once we are in this setup. The second piece, especially in food, is going to be adaptation. At this stage, we talk a lot about mitigation of those emissions or those environmental impacts, but the food system is extremely vulnerable to weather patterns changes. With the shocks that come with climate change, with biodiversity loss and water scarcity, we're going to see adaptation be at the forefront and really be looked at as a risk management standpoint. So I think we're going to see a much bigger equilibrium, even in our regions. And the third thing is a comeback of compliance. For a lot of time, especially in the food space, food companies were very ahead of you know, sustainability compliance and they had set science-based targets very early on and so on. The reality is now compliance is catching back, especially in Europe with the deforestation ban, the packaging, waste regulation, the eco-labeling. And so companies are starting to look back to compliance and saying, oh, what do I have to do? That will significantly accelerate the discussions. Some very advanced regions, also like California, are starting to push companies. And when they shift for a region, they'll start shifting for everything because it's much more effective this way. 
all of these elements will make the transition increase the pace and also make it more holistic so that it becomes actually more sustainable. The shifts have been really interesting in the past few years. Let's hope the speed of activity continues. But for now, Charlotte Band from Qantas, thank you very much indeed. In Washington, D.C., at Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action Conference, I spoke with Rabobank's Chief Sustainability Officer, Taryn Lawrence, and Jeff Brighty, Head of Sustainability at Mura Technology. I'm joined by Taryn Lawrence, who's Chief Sustainability Officer for North America at Rabobank. Welcome. Thank you so much. We were talking just now about integrated climate and nature disclosures. How do you see the finance sector's requirements changing on this? I think you've seen the uptick in carbon and climate risk. We, as a bank committed to that zero banking alliance, like many of our peers here in the United States, we have to disclose our operational and financed emissions. What's challenging about that is the data quality. I think something shared at this conference that everyone is struggling with is primary data. So we're going directly to the source to try to up-level the quality of our data to have better informed decision-making. Everything we've learned through the carbon process, we can apply to the nature process as it's starting to uptick. I mean, it felt that the mood of the room was that, well, look, we haven't got even close to getting carbon started out, and now we're going to do nature as well. Yeah, I think there's always a risk of fracturing your focus. I'm a strong proponent, having a startup background, of narrow focus, saying no to things that might be distracting from your core. When it comes to something as important as nature, though, we can't sit till everything is perfect on carbon to start. But what I think we need to do is not rely on existing teams to expand and take on new, really critical pieces. We have to hire, we have to train, we have to upscale our employees. So what are the specific data points that you're seeing or that you're seeing the sector now requiring of business? Well, emissions for corporate clients and now getting down into the farmer and producer level will be really important. Beyond that, as a bank, we ask all about our, the social practices, biodiversity, deforestation. We seek a lot of information around our clients to make informed decisions about what they're doing, how they are transitioning, and how we can support that transition. Something that came out in the conference session we were involved in was uh, talking about getting the incentives right so that all stakeholders are comfortable to share data. Yeah. How do we do that? Everyone wants the reduction. No one wants to pay for it. I think the financial institutions in the room have to incentivize these behaviors that we see as so critical to the transition, whether that is through a reduced cost of capital, whether that's through non-monetary incentives. So for example, potentially I could give some sort of unit economic value when I ask for carbon data. There has to be a give back in lieu of local legislation and regulation. And it's great to see the finance sector engaging these issues now. And that's obviously the next step. All these projects, these innovations that we've been talking about require financing. Good to see we're getting there. Thanks very much, Taryn from Rabble Bank. Appreciate the opportunity. I'm joined by Jeff Brighty, who's the Global Head of Sustainability at Mura Technology. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. We were talking about collaboration and competition yesterday. How are you seeing collaboration developing around the sustainability? Well, for us, it's hugely important. We're part of this something called a circular economy. We're trying to join up the disparate ends of the linear economy of take, make, use and dispose of collaboration both with our supply chain from the point of view of the waste materials and then trying to connect that process then to our off-takers is proving really important for us because we want to make sure that the connection between the waste industry and the pet chems is actually happening probably for the first time. Pet chems can't take waste, we're that interlocutor that's taking that waste material and transferring it to them. More importantly that material then comes around the circular economy and will come back by the waste stream. So for us the whole value chain has to be aligned to make this whole thing work. Yeah, it does feel that we're seeing now real B2B cooperation and collaboration around innovation, finding new products, new ideas. What do you think's prompted that? Is this the realization that you can do it on your own? 
I think a few years ago, if I was talking to my customer's customer, that would be the end of my working relationship with my customer. But I think the recognition now, particularly with things like Scope 3, where that material that we're passing down the line, it's my Scope 3, someone else's Scope 3, and it's going to come back round again. So we have to understand really where our material flow is going and what impacts and what decisions others are making around that value chain when it comes to or comes back to us that we're able to process it, for example. So if they design their products differently, that could be a massive impact for us. But also we don't want to be giving somebody too high a carbon footprint because it might throw their ESG accounting out. We all have to be aligned and working together to make this thing work. Tell us a little bit about what your technology does. We are an advanced recycler and we take waste plastics and we convert that into uh, premium quality oils through a process called hydrothermal liquefaction. It's a supercritical water process. And that recycling generates these oils, which will go back into a pet chem environment as a feedstock for future materials. So particularly plastics, but it's part of our product range also goes into road making. So a bitumen binder for asphalt. Clearly you're then, as you say, needing to develop the collaboration that you have. What is next for you guys? What are you doing looking at now? Key thing for us is get to scale. In the EU, we're burning 12 million tons of plastic per annum. We want to stop that from happening. It's very polluting. It's clearly adding a lot of carbon to the environment and we're losing the resource. Through our process, what we're able to do is capture that resource, keep it in circulation, not emit it to the environment, and also stop things like plastic pollution, which we know has been so totemic over the last few years. The understanding that plastic does a great job in terms of protecting shelf life for food, giving durability to products, protecting them in transit, that's really important. Medical grade as well in terms of health, but we have to keep that material in circulation. It cannot be just thrown away. This is a valuable resource, and we also don't want it to be driving climate change. Yeah, I mean, plastic does a great job in many respects. The challenge, you see, is to keep it out of the environment at the end and to maintain and find the value of that, because plastic is something that simply has not been valued in the past. No, it's not. And it, it is a, an engineered product. Packaging is strongly engineered to do a job, driven by regulation, driven by you know, expectations of customers. But once the packaging's been thrown away, that's the end of life. But huge amounts of effort has gone into make that. What we can do is we can keep that material in circulation and also regenerate material that might still be in use, but may have, for some reason, you know, not able to be performed, kind of be extruded or whatever. So we can sustain the life of that carbon and basically recycle 90 plus percent of that material back into a valuable product. Well, it's great to see these solutions emerging. Jeff from Amir Technology, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Just published are some pre-COP28 thoughts from regular business and climate contributor Mike Scott. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday as usual. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.